All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you from New York City on this, the 20th day of August 2019. Uh, Before I talk about uh, today's show, let me remind you, I do publish a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, uh, and you can subscribe to that letter which I think you should do because it's an exciting time in the junior gold mining space. Uh, Go to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com, and sign up for the letter, or you can call us here in New York at 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426. also like to encourage you to consider subscribing to Chen Lin's letter, What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? Go to chenpicks.com, chenpicks.com. Also, I want to thank you for listening to this show, making it one of the more popular Voice America uh, business channel shows. And I do want to invite you to continue sending along your comments to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. Questions number four, taylor at gmail.com. Also want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Sponsors for today's show, Klondike Gold, Novo Resources, Radisson Mining Resources, and Great Bear Resources. I've titled today's show... Frank Holmes on Gold and Markets in General. Forced by the U.S. to abandon the gold-backed monetary system after uh, August 15, 1971, the world has embarked 100% on the use of fantasy money created out of thin air rather than money with intrinsic value. The dollar, which is dictated by law, not chosen by markets, is money backed not by assets like gold or silver, but money that is manufactured by debt and hence has no intrinsic value. When Nixon uh, separated dollar, the dollar from gold and um, ushered in a floating rate global monetary system backed by debt, the dollar retained its value not because it had any intrinsic value, but because the U.S. used its military superiority to essentially force the world to accept the dollar for commerce, most notably underpinned by, uh, by an agreement with the Saudis to require all global oil purchases made in dollars. That's how the U.S. dollar became the world's reserve currency, which meant we in the U.S. didn't have to produce much of anything to buy production from developing nations. We could simply print money to get what we wanted, and so we did. Now it seems uh, other countries are not so sure they want to continue using dollars for their trade or to invest in a country that uses the proceeds of treasury bonds to expand its military and force those same nations to submit to Anglo-American empire desires. Not only that, but with so much money printed over the decades, it has served to destroy capitalism by denying 
price discovery of capital. And so the U.S. uses its resources to wage war everywhere, while a cancer within the global market system spreads, leading to what many believe will be a global contraction of wealth in the years to come. One thing we do know is that unlike fiat money, gold retains its purchasing power, as James Turk pointed out so well in last week's show. One investment pro who knows as much as about the gold markets as anyone I know is Frank Holmes, the CEO, Chief Investment Officer of U.S. Global Funds. Frank will be with me in the second half of today's hour to give an outlook uh, on gold and other markets during this, as, as I say, during the second part of today's show. Uh, and he'll also talk about uh, the gold ETF that uh, is under the U.S. Global Fund's umbrella. It is a, a fund that is uh, really uh, outperforming its peers. So we want to find out from Frank how he has managed to accomplish that. Right after our first commercial break, Eric Coffin, the uh, co-founder of the Metals Investor Forum and author of an excellent newsletter called The Hard Rock Analyst, will be with me to give his views on the market's and he will talk about a couple of the stocks he is most excited about uh, as this new bull market really starts to get underway. Eric always has great insights into the markets in general as well. And one of his favorites, however, among the gold stocks is Great Bear Resources, a uh, company that is a sponsor of this show. It's also one of my favorites, so I'm really looking forward to what Eric has to say about Great Bear. But right now, I'm happy to tell you that I have Michael Oliver with us. Uh, to help um, us see where things are going and uh, find out what's on his mind today. Thanks for joining me, Michael. Hi, Jay. Good to be back. Always good to have you with me now. Um, you know, we, we, have, uh, we have clearly seen gold in a very convincing breakout mode over the past couple of months. What, in your view, is driving gold, and, and to what heights do you think uh, it might go as measured in U.S. dollars? Well, gee, uh, <laughs> that last question, uh, I don't know. Uh, taking out the all-time highs is the 1920, uh, 2011 highs, likely. Right now, this particular surge that we're in, I think, is likely to reach 1700 area. Uh, there might be some congestion in between, minor correction, but I don't see anything of a major correction, which so many people are looking for constantly over the last few months. I'm sure they're frustrated. Uh, every time they get a dip, it stops about two days later and goes back up. Uh, but uh, as far as the ultimate, I don't know. Uh, no. that, that is, I, I, I can't technically determine that except to say that I do think we're in the final drama of market manipulation and the things you've just defined. In other words, the errors in calculation that so many people have made because of the distortions of the underlying money unit but because of distortions in the cost of money, uh, you know, and so forth, and, and over such a long period of time now, 10 years solid of this mm-hmm. sort of stuff. Uh, yeah. So the distortions that are uh, millions, you know, individuals make mistakes, corporations make mistakes, governments, et cetera. So many mistakes have been piled up based on these false metrics that it's hard to tell all the ramifications except to know that they're large. Yeah. We've never had such a thing. So when it unleashes to then say, well, where's gold going to go in that process? I can say up and big, yeah. but I can't tell, you know, what, what is the number that we're headed for? I, don't, I can't well, tell. Really. Yeah, of course, understandably. And, of course, we don't really know uh, with the dollar not having any value or certainly not any consistent value, then, you know, that's the unknown as well. It's like changing the, the uh, length of a yardstick and then asking what is a yard. Yep. 
But Michael, you know, one of the things that I'm hearing from a lot of my friends, people that have been watching markets for for a while, you know, they all seem to be kind of fearful that we're heading into, that we'll have another kind of 2008, 2009, and then a deflationary collapse of commodities and just a, a deflationary environment in general. But actually, you seem to be holding out the view that we could be looking at something more akin to the 19, late 1970s up to 1980, and sort of a, do I understand, maybe you think we, we could be headed for a, a deflationary, sort of a, uh, a, a situation like the 70s where we had both a lot of inflation and a lot of unemployment. Right. The, it, it's what they call the, the word stagflation came stagflation, about. Stagflation, right. Thank you. It was actually a depression, but we'll, we'll get away from that. But anyway, so the stock market was a wasteland for a decade. Mm-hmm. Put money in the stock market was up and down and up and down, but didn't go anywhere for 10 years. Mm-hmm. But meanwhile, in the mid to late 70s, commodities, which had already been trashed, were laying at levels that were based on what we call theoretical zero. In other words, commodities don't go to zero. Company stocks can go to zero. Mm-hmm. Uh, but commodities can't. And there's certain times in history where they get bashed so bad, so low, uh, that they demonstrate that, one, I'm not going any lower. Okay, and I think that's basically where commodities are now. Uh, mm-hmm. In 2011 and early 2012, MSA turned major bearish on gold, emerging markets, and commodities in general, CRB index, mm-hmm. uh, or the Bloomberg, Bloomberg Commodity Indexes, which is the one we watch now. Uh, the Bloomberg Commodity Index back then in 2011 was in the, had a peak above 170. Uh, we got bearish in the low 140s in December of 2011. They collapsed to a low in 2016, coincident with gold's drop, to of 72. So they were cut in half from the 2011 high to the 2016 low. Then the Bloomberg Commodity Index rallied from the low 70s up into the low 90s, a 27% rally. In 2018 was its rally high. And now since then, it's rolled back over and it's about 77 right now. It's still off of its 2016 low. But when you look at a price chart of Bloomberg, it's four and a half, three and a half years, almost four years now of sideways. Mm-hmm. It's not going down. It collapsed. I mean, what do you want? You go to zero. It's not going to go to zero. Uh-huh. Same uh-huh. if you look at a, a chart of corn, wheat, soybeans, uh, sugar. Uh, they made lows. They had rallies varying extents, and then they flop back down, but they're not making new lows. They're in a range. So the, the legal the definition of what they're in technically is sideways, horizontal mm-hmm. markets. They're not bear, they're not bull. Uh, we did have some good, strong moves out of oil and copper during that period. Uh, they both peaked in 2018 after very strong percent moves and then flopped back down hard. But we think that the commodity complex as a whole uh, we've made some fumbles on calling the grains, for example. They've had some up moves and they were faults. Uh, and, but they, when they fell back, they didn't go to new lows. They just went sideways again. Uh, mm-hmm. I think as a concert, the, the commodity complex will move in unison. But I think that's likely to occur when the stock market does get whacked hard. Because at that point, first off, there's some technical linkage right now between the Bloomberg Commodity Index and, let's say, the S&P. It's hard to detect, but, you know, as the S&P weakened recently, the, uh, so did the Bloomberg, et cetera, et cetera, and oil drops with the stock market, rallies with the mm-hmm. stock market. But we think a separation is going to occur, and we think it started in the form of stock market peaking and commodities bottoming. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, when the central banks go nutso on the mm-hmm. next stock market drop, and they will definitely go nutso, uh, mm-hmm. they've already said so, 
uh, I think that money's going to flow into the commodity complex simply because it ain't going down anymore. And people mm-hmm. will perceive that. Though. You know, rational minds will look at the charts and say, these aren't bear markets, these are sideways. Yeah. Well, uh, they don't want to go well, any lower. Well, well, Michael, let me ask you this, then. You've been a, a, a short-term bull on the Treasury markets, the T-bond you watch closely. You've been, uh, as I understand it, a long-term bear on those same markets. Do you think then that the uh, the turn downward in the uh, Treasury markets might occur along with the realization that we are in an inflationary environment? I suspect that the T-bond downturn, I mean, a rise in yields, and I don't mm-hmm. think the drop in yields right now is over with. It has nothing to do with it. Yeah. It has to do with market forces. I right. think they're going to continue to drop in yield as the market tops and goes down, stock market. Mm-hmm. I think once you get your first big whoosh down in the stock market, at that point, you're likely to get a spike up, uh, flight to quality, flight to safety, in the T-bonds. At that mm-hmm. point, I'd get very suspicious about continued drop in rates, continued rise in the T-bond market uh, in price. Because mm-hmm. uh, I think at that point, some emotion will come into the T-bonds that is more or less flushed out the money that it's going to get from the, those who are fleeing the stock market. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at that point, that's where I'm looking for the T-bonds to probably crest and head back down in price, meaning rise in yields. And that's when you get your real nightmare. You have a weak stock market, and you have rising rates as well. Yeah. I think during that period of time, we're likely to have the commodity boom like we had in the late 1970s, mm-hmm. uh, which, by the way, was led about by a year, the gold market. Yeah. Right, uh, right. And uh, so I think that's so, where we are. All right. And, uh, all right, very good. I would just uh, mention, you, you said, I think when you first started talking about the 70s, it was a depression. And I know James Dines talked about how if you really factored in the inflation rate during the 1970s, the uh, equity market actually performed as badly or close to as badly as it did in the 1930s in the Great Depression. So I thought that was really mm-hmm. interesting. Uh, yeah. You can have rising prices, but if your uh, currency is losing value all the time, uh, those rising prices don't do you much good. Michael, thank you so much for being with us. Your, uh, your views are very much appreciated, uh, your, your thoughtful views. Um, whether people want to hear it or not, I'm thankful to you for telling it like it is or as, as you see it. And as your very objective, um, very objective uh, models suggest uh, it is. So thank okay. you so much for being with us. Thank All right, you. folks. Well, we do have to go to break, but don't go away. Eric Coffin is going to be with me. He's the author of the Hard Rock Analyst Newsletter, an excellent newsletter that I subscribe to and enjoy very much and profit from. So uh, I hope you'll be back right after the break with Eric Coffin. Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Pilbara region of Western Australia. Novo has recently partnered with Sumitomo Corporation of Japan to evaluate, advance, and develop the company's Australian gold projects. With over $40 million in cash and $60 million committed from Sumitomo, Novo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. 
Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. Really pleased to have with me once again, Eric Coffin. Eric is the editor of the HRA, that stands for Hard Rock Analyst, a family of publications. He is also the co-founder of the Metals Investor Forum, which, by the way, will be gathering uh, in September, on September 6th and 7th in Vancouver. It's a free-of-charge event, but you do need to sign up in order to ensure uh, space there because the space is limited and uh, very often... I think they always sell out eventually, and uh, so. But you need to be sure that your name is there. Just go to J Taylor Media, J Taylor Media. Click on the mining stocks, or, or go on uh, J Taylor Media or mining stocks, I should say, and click on the Metals Investor Forum banner. And all you need to do is enter your your name and an email address, and then you're assured a spot at this forum, which, by the way, has been very profitable for me in the sense that I have learned to know some excellent companies there and have invested in them and they've done very well. So, But uh, getting back to Eric, he, he always provides uh, his views on the market. Uh, I think I, I always try to, as busy as we are at these conferences, try to listen in to his views on the, uh, on the markets in general. Uh, and there's nobody that I know among the newsletter crowd that does a better job with exploration companies helping his subscribers understand the geology and the, uh, the probabilities of success with the exploration story. So I'm really pleased to have Eric back with me again. Thanks for joining me, Eric. Thanks for inviting me, Jay. I'm always happy to come on. Oh, I'm well, the one that we're going to have to have you on more often, I think, uh, because it's it's always a it's always a blessing to have you. Uh, we have clearly seen gold. I mean, this is really a convincing move. I see. I, I chart the monthly average gold price. A day, you know, take the daily prices from the PM fix. And going back uh, decades, and I mean, this is clearly a very distinct breakout. This looks like something that's real, very exciting. What are your thoughts about the gold market and what's driving it? Yeah, I don't. I don't think there's much doubt this is real. I mean, I I sent out something a couple of months ago to subscribers that you know the, the headline is basically it's on. Uh, I don't think anybody can learn. anybody that looks at charts. Even as a as a at a passing interest, you can look at a gold chart and not see an obvious breakout. And this doesn't look anything, and it's not behaving anything like the the upward moves that we've had four or five times in the last three years. You know, all of which topped out well below the level we're trading at now. Uh, this is definitely the real thing. We've got a a very different market backdrop worldwide. Uh, a lot of the large economic blocks are decelerating quite rapidly. We're, you know, I think we're up to 16 or 17 trillion now in negative mm-hmm. yielding bonds, and that's not even negative right. real yields; that's negative nominal yields. I, wish right. I, I 
honestly have trouble getting my head around the idea. Is just to me, it's so insane. But but you know, here we are. And even in the U.S., if you look at the ten-year, I think we're down to, I think we're below one point six percent on the ten-year. We've got an mm-hmm. inverted yield curve, which is terrible for timing, but it's one of the most reliable recession, you know, forward recession indicators. I don't think it's guaranteed we have a recession, but although early this year I, I said I thought we'd get one in the U.S. by year end, and it, it, we're in a we're in a background where policymakers, politicians large companies, they don't have to make many mistakes to screw this up. And I think everybody's sensing that, and that's that's driving the gold prices, which has been strong against everything, even against the U.S. dollar. I mean, it's, this is this is the real deal this time. Yeah, it sure, sure seems like it. I'm trying to get your head around negative rates, it certainly is hard to do. It, it doesn't seem to make any any kind of economic sense. And um, they're going to pay me to take out a mortgage, I guess. Or, uh, yeah, well, so I, historically, I, if you look at if you look at really over very, very long periods of time and you try to pick out what, what environment is good for the gold price, and I'm, I'm not really a gold bug per se, but if you look at it over the very long term, I think the one thing that will, ju- will jump out at you as being the most positive environment for gold prices and, and normally for commodities in general is essentially negative in real interest rates. Mm-hmm. And the fact we've got negative not only real but nominal ones, it's, it's kind of the best environment you can have for gold. And the fact that it hasn't yet been a strong environment for, say, base metals is part of the reason why I'm a little edgy about the economy. When I when I see that divergence, yeah. that tells me that you know things are slowing down in a lot of places to drive that sort of divergence. So I've been kind of sticking to precious metals the last little while. Right. Uh, certainly is certainly is true. And uh, copper, for example... Dr. Copper isn't cooperating uh, with the inflationary no, viewpoint. But but that no, said, we just... Uh, like, yeah, go ahead. No, yeah, it's just, it's not acting like you'd expect Copper to act if the world... Because, I mean, every you tend to focus on the U.S., but, of course, it's not... The U.S. isn't a big demand area for base metals. You know, it's China, it's Europe, and when you just, you know, you see copper trading the way it is, it doesn't make you very comfortable with the world economy. Yeah, well, you know, I'm old enough, a little older than you, Eric, but I, I remember quite well the 1970s, the late 70s, the inflationary 70s, which, by the way, Michael Oliver, who was just with us, suggests he believes we're heading back towards. And that was not a good economy either. We had a lot of well, stagflation, and uh, we had a lot of unemployment, yeah. and yet all of the commodity prices went up. Well, it's not that they gained value, but it's the currency was losing its value. So we measure everything in the dollar, and the dollar loses its value vis-a-vis other, other currencies or vis-a-vis the, the, the things that you need and have to have. It certainly was a part of the 1970s, and all of Michael's work suggests that that's, uh, that's where he thinks we're headed. And he noted that gold led the general commodity complex by about a year at that time, I think he said. So anyway, whatever it is, it seems uh, – go ahead. I hope he's right, because I own a lot of base metal stocks, too. I don't just own gold stocks. <laughs> well, I do kind of hope he's right, too, for the same reasons, Eric. But at the same time, um, I realize there could be an awful lot of suffering around the world if things go the way gold bugs think they might go. And, um, you know, I confess to being a gold bug, not because I want to see the world go to hell, but just basically because I think the monetary policies, of uh, the Keynesian monetary policies over decades have just been ill-advised and, and, and are leading now, I think, to some real significant problems. Uh, you know, every every cycle of lower lows for interest rates, they can't hike them back up to where they were because the debt has become so much greater 
Anyway, enough of that. I want to get on to some of the things that you're really excited about and you're working on. One of them I know that we share in common, our interests, and that is a sponsor of this show, Great Bear uh, Resources, and GBR in Canada, GTBDF in the U.S. I think, Eric, 40.7 million shares is all they have outstanding, and I see it Canadian $5.30 earlier today. It's a market cap of around $216 million, which is higher than most of the companies that I follow, but... This is a really exciting story, and their, their initial discovery at Dixie Lake in Ontario was really considered to be very much like um, sort of a traditional Red Lake, or like the Red Lake mine, the famous one that was the company maker for Goldcorp. Um, and, uh, and so that was the Dixie, uh, the Dixie Hinge, Dixie Limb, those initial discoveries. But now they've come up with another, uh, another type of mineralization. Uh, maybe just talk to us, what are your thoughts about about this company and, and where it might be able to go it's with this discovery. Great management team, they've done a fantastic job of keeping the keeping the share structure tight while still being able to raise a lot of money. They've got twenty million in the bank now, and eight or ten million in the money warrants that'll come in. They're very efficient and not particularly expensive drillers, so with that amount of money, they can probably literally drill a couple hundred thousand meters. Red Lake's one of those areas where you often have to drill a couple hundred thousand meters. Yeah. What's really interesting, what's going on now, they, they announced at the start of this month that they'd moved all three of the drill rigs that they have going to, to what they call the LP fault. And LP stands for lithoprobe. Um, I won't bore your audience with the details, but this was a, a government-sponsored survey done about 30 years ago looking for very deep-seated crustal structures. Mm-hmm. As it happens, there's two of them in the Red Lake camp. One of them is the main structure that is essentially the Red Lake mine trend that's had, I don't know, 30, 35 million ounces mined off of it. The other one happens to be running right through the middle of the Dixie project. It <laughs> hasn't actually seen a lot of historic work, but they went back and looked at some of the drill holes and realized those didn't really hit what they would have assumed was the target near the fault. They drilled a couple of holes. They reported good results, but more importantly, I think for them, was two things. One, this is not Red Lake model. It's different from the other stuff in the camp. I, I hesitate to use this word, but the best analog I can see is probably Hemlo, actually, which is a word people your age and mine will remember very well. Yes, in Ontario. yes, a indeed. Famous discovery that it, it kind of made the VSE really. But when they announced the start of this month that they moved all three drill rigs to the LP fault. I mean, obviously, they decided we had some, we got something here. We've got to figure out, and these are really strong technical guys. And then last week, they announced they're going to do a webinar a couple of days before MIF. Actually, yes. What that tells me is that they want to do a technical webinar to lay out what they're. And I'm, there's not much doubt in my mind, my mind. LP is what the webinar is going to be about. This, if they do have something that's a true analog, and I don't think they know yet. I don't think they. I don't think they have a lot of assays, notwithstanding having three Joe rigs going. Those are all going to be hitting their office in the next two weeks. But if they have a true analog, one of the things about Hemlo that made it so exciting was that once they tagged onto the zone back in 1981, they were able to build ounces very fast. And if Great Bear's onto something like that, um, look out. <laughs> like things could, things could really, I mean, things are pretty crazy already if you look at the stock chart for this company, but they, they could definitely get crazier if they're onto something like that. But, you know, Presumably, we're all going to know in, in a couple of weeks when they have this webinar, because I'm, I'm assuming there'll be a news release 
ahead of it. Okay. That's normally how they do it. They'll put it. They'll put it news, and then the webinar will explain. This is what we think it means. So I, okay. I think that could be. Uh, it's a big deal already, but I think it could be a much bigger deal before it's over. All right, and the ounces could pile up quickly, I guess, because what you've got broader structures and, and not as as narrow as I think a lot of the, yeah, the traditional yeah, Hemlo, things. Like yeah, Hemlo was. Uh, there's still, as usual with these things, they're still arguing over what Hemlo even is. But yeah, I think the, the most recent version I've seen is it. They called it a remobilized um, epithermal system, which is it. Basically, it was a big, a big deformation zone, alteration zone that kind of squeezes and stretched it out. And you ended up with these, you know, it had some really impressive thick high-grade zones, but it also had fairly broad zones. Um, that's part of the reason why the ounces added up fast, because Red Lake, you get an incredible high-grade there, but quite often you're dealing with one, two, three-meter veins, and they're great right. veins, don't get me wrong, but mm-hmm. it takes a lot of drill holes. If they've got something where they've got where they've got high-grade within 30 or 40 or 50 meters of alteration zone that's also carrying gold, I mean, the ounces oh. will just add up a lot faster. Plus, it's close to surface. I mean, the intercepts, they've noted already, are they've only drilled like 100, 150 meter holes. They're not, this is not deep stuff. This right. Oh, yeah. And if they have something big, they can start to see a lot of ounces there, then that will give them time uh, to go back to the other uh, traditional Red Lake stuff, I guess. Oh, yeah, I, I don't, yeah I, I don't think anybody should think this means anything you know, bad for the other zones. The other zones are fine. They're getting yeah. you know, expected results. Those are building ounces. I think they're just looking at this zone and saying, if this is what we think it is, we, we need to get on this because we need to be building ounces. Because I, I think they're looking over their shoulders. I think they're getting a little worried someone's going to come after them, which if they were just drilling straight-up red-like stuff, I'd say, nah, it's too early. Nobody's, nobody's going to come after them for a takeover. But if they're, if they're on to something where the ounces will build fast, that could change. Yeah. That could change dramatically. Yeah. Well, let's let's hope the share price for those of us that own the stock uh, takes a hefty rise, if that's the case. But with only forty point seven million shares, wow, this thing is very doable, very very uh, tempting. I would think to some of the bigger guys. In any event, Eric, we only got a couple of minutes left, and there's another one you want to talk about, Minera Alamos. Um, and um, yeah, I think it's a good stock for a rising gold price. It, it's a this is a very good technical team. Um, it's the opposite end of the spectrum when it comes to share flow. Yeah. They've got about 400 million shares out. But I'm, I'm okay with that because they're not in exploration mode anymore, really. I mean, they're drilling right now. They might get some good results. But what they're doing is building a couple of very low-cost mines in Mexico. Normally, with an exploration company, I would run the other way when they said that. But in this yeah. case, the guy's running it, um, Doug, and, and especially uh, Darren Conigan. Darren, Darren is more a mining engineer. He's built three or four mines in in Sonora, all of them very, very low cost, very successful mines. Their expectation is they can put their first mine, Santana, in production for about $10 million. They've got all the permits. Um, they have a relationship with a company called the Cisco Royalties. I'm expecting to see some kind of a news release about, you know, here's a royalty stream sale, whatever, that's going to cover the CapEx for Santana. Once that's up and running, which won't take long, it's a fairly simple heat leach operation, they'll shift over to their second project probably next year once the first one's going that one's already permitted um it, it's a mill but they've already bought the mill it's also relatively low capex i think these guys can be a hundred thousand ounce producer in like two years so mm-hmm. I, I think it's a really nice relative you know as safe as anything gets in this sector 
safe right. sort of holding for rising gold price because I think it's got a lot of upside ahead of it as they as they grow themselves to be a producer and they're they're ready right. to go they've, they've got the permits they're good to go right yeah so it's uh, only about a, I think uh, as you say close to four hundred million shares three hundred seventy six is what I count I'm sure fully diluted over four hundred perhaps but a fourteen to fifteen cents Canadian market cap around fifty five million uh, MAI is a symbol in Canada MAI double F in the U S yeah, so they have a couple of other projects too, don't they? They have La Fortuna. Yeah. Is that the one you're talking about? They might move over there after the first Fortuna, one. The Fortuna would be the second line, and mm-hmm. the third one they've optioned to a, to another company, but that company's doing development work on it. And I know that I know that Doug Ramshaw and and Darren Conigan. I know I know they're looking at a bunch of other projects. I mean, they kind of got their hands full as it is. Mm-hmm. But, uh, Darren's the guy that that built uh, a couple of a couple of the early heat bleach operations, like El Castillo. I remember back in the day, Dave, when I looked at El Castillo, and it, it made sense, but the capex was so low, we just kind of rolled our eyes on it. Like, there's no way yeah. you're losing that cheap, yeah. man. And yeah. sure yeah. enough, he built it cheaper and faster, and it made a lot of money. So when he came back this time and showed me this, if it was most other guys, and they said, I'm building a heat bleach for $10 million, I would have just laughed. But sure. I've seen this sure. guy do this. Yeah. All right. Well, plenty of uh, more things to hear from uh, Eric at the Metals Investor Forum and the other newsletter writers. I'll be there as well. Gwen Preston, uh, John Kaiser, a number of us will be there. Uh, go to J. Taylor Media, click on the Metals Investor Forum uh, banner and enter your name and an email address and you'll have access to this, uh, to this uh, forum. Uh, and you need to do that because they do sell it out every time. So uh, be sure you sign up yeah. if you're in the Vancouver area to go there. The numbers are coming along pretty good, are they, Eric? Yeah, I was just going to say the list is actually filling up fairly fast. So okay. I, I imagine, as usual, we'll be closing the RSVP list before the event like we normally do. Normally do. Okay, folks. Well, uh, that's all the time. Thank you so much, Eric, for being with us. I should mention it's hraadvisory.com, hraadvisory.com, to check up, uh, sign up for Eric's newsletter and learn more about what he does. Thanks, Eric, for being with us. Well, folks, uh, we do have to go to break now. You bet, anytime. All right, Frank Holmes will be with us right after the commercial break. He's the CEO and Chief Investment Advisor, officer, I should say, of the U.S. Global Funds, and we want to talk to him about his gold ETF, which is doing quite well these days and actually better than many of the peers. So we want to, we'll be right back with Frank Holmes. Don't go away. rush has begun. Recently, three of the largest gold mining companies announced strategic acquisitions in the Yukon territories. Ahead of them was a group who had already consolidated the key claims covering the historic Klondike gold rush into one company, aptly named Klondike Gold Corps. Led by a team of accomplished geoscientists, the company is steadily advancing exploration to reveal the rich source of all that gold. The hunt for the next major discovery is well underway, and Klondike Gold's shareholders are strategically positioned. Stay ahead of the majors and follow KlondikeGoldCorp.com. Great Bear Resources, trading under GBR on the TSX and GTBDF on the OTCQB, is a gold exploration company focused on their wholly owned Dixie project in the prolific Red Lake Mining District of Canada. Having recently made four major gold discoveries, GBR is now fully funded to drill 90,000 meters through to the year 2020 as part of a very active exploration program. Rob McEwen. 
of McEwen Mining, a Red Lake veteran, is a significant shareholder following a recent $5.7 million investment. To stay up to date, visit greatbearresources.ca. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. listening to turning hard times into good times with your host jay taylor if you have a question or comment about today's show jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790 that's 1-866-472-5790 you can also send an email to questions taylor at gmail.com that's questions the number four taylor at gmail.com now back to our program Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. Really pleased to have Frank Holmes with me once again. Frank is the CEO and Chief Investment Officer of U.S. Global Funds. At, uh, the group of funds that specializes in natural resources and emerging markets. Uh, he is well known for his expertise in precious metals uh, in that sector, as well as his general overall strong investment track record. And uh, I should say before we say hello to Frank, the website is usfunds.com, usfunds.com. Thanks for joining me, Frank. Uh, it's great to be with you again, Jay. And we it's have a better great. gold market. Oh, yes. It is, a, it is a happier time for us gold bugs, but it's happier in, in one way. But in some other ways, a lot of times gold does very well when a lot of other people aren't doing so well. So I, I, I don't cheer for higher gold prices, uh, you know, because other people are suffering, if that's the case. Uh, but in any event, Frank, I'd, I'd like to, you have a, a holistic approach to investing. Uh, you're not you you like gold very much. I know you're you're specialized in, in precious metals, but you have a very balanced approach to investing as well, better than yours truly has. I'd like to ask you to talk just briefly about your group of mutual funds and and just let our listeners know about the kind of uh, investments that your mutual funds are engaged in. Then I also want you to talk. Uh, about a couple of your ETFs as well. Great. Thank you for the opportunity to share what we do. Um, you know, U.S. Global was the first no-load gold fund in America mm-hmm. in the 70s, and, uh, uh, and its success was because South Africa was paying massive dividends, or like 20% dividend yields. Yeah. And, uh, and so uh, that was sort of the genesis of it. And then in 1990, I moved from Canada down to Texas, so I became a Tex-Can. Y'all come <laughs> back, hey. Uh, and and with that, you know, I tried to revamp, and, and we embraced uh, big money market funds at the time, so we had the ability to go between the gold funds and go to U.S. government bonds, uh, and mm-hmm. uh, that was sort of a, a big run, too. Interest rates went to zero, and then we yeah. repositioned, so that, that holistic approach, Jay, is that we have uh, a very stable tax-free fund called NEREX, a short term, and it stays around $2 a, a share. Um, and it pays monthly dividends, and that was always sort of the core position uh, that you have, and then because it's tax real, and you have the gold funds, uh, and then we have big chip, blue chip funds, and we also have a short term government uh, 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 bond fund. But I, uh, that's the sort of the holistic approach. Mm-hmm. And one mm-hmm. of the things we noticed with gold, and, and, and what happened in the '90s, was the buyers of gold. The growth was was out of Asia. 
Mm-hmm. And so I went over to Asia on a tour and saw that when it was 1991, Communist China, I was, uh, back then the airport was so, Beijing was so terrible when you think about what it is today. Um, but you could go to a shopping mall and uh, there'd be gold traders at the back. So gold uh-huh. was a part of their culture. And I saw how fast China was growing. So I started a China fund. And then I saw Eastern Europe and the wall came down. So I started the first Eastern European fund. Mm-hmm. And that gave me sort of the whole global picture. And what's really interesting in the past couple of years, some of the biggest buyers has not been Germany and not been Italy or France. Uh, it's been Eastern European bloc countries, which have become big buyers of bullion of their central banks. Oh, uh-huh. So it's been, you know, in, you know, an interesting turn uh, that I could see the, the world turn going from Asia to America to uh, uh, Eastern Europe and then come right around the, 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 the earth. Yeah, I mean, the countries where they've had communist rule or where they've had uh, difficult times, they've seen how governments can screw up the economies so badly and they and they're with their currencies, of course. And so I guess maybe that's the reason those areas have been so bullish on, on gold. Probably the Chinese, certainly, as soon as they were allowed to own them, own gold, they started buying it like crazy, right? Absolutely. Uh, and, and there's a really strong data point on Bloomberg that shows the rising GDP per capita and that they just buy more gold. So they yeah. gift giving, uh, and I call it the love trade, and 60% of all gold, gold demand is for love. Uh, yeah. So I think that's a steady backdrop for what we're seeing now. And then we have the fear trade, and these fear trades can last from from a year to three years, and I think we're in a three-year run here uh, where we're going to negative real interest rates, uh, especially out of Europe that's driving that, and Japan. Uh, and you have something that's unprecedented. The Federal Reserve cannot buy the S&P 500 index, uh, ETF. But in, in Switzerland and in countries like Japan, uh, they own 15% of the stock market. They print funny right. money, uh, and uh, they're out buying the stock market. They're not, they've not been buying gold, whereas uh, Poland and uh, 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 Hungary, uh, mm-hmm. for a classic example, they've been big buyers of bullion. Yeah. Well, do you think, they, uh, you, you think our Federal Reserve might, uh, might do something like that, like the Swiss uh, bank, to start buying uh, equities? They'd, ha- they'd have to be a, a change in, in the federal charter. That would be a yeah. big uh, political move. Uh, so yeah. I don't think that that's going to happen. Um, but what's important on that love trade, I like to tell people, is that Indian women wear mm-hmm. six times the amount of gold that's in Fort Knox. <laughs> and uh, some Just, people don't believe the gold's in Fort Knox, but Indian women, I always can see the gold. That 24-karat gold is gorgeous. Uh-huh. Um, so I think from that end, uh, uh, in my global travels, I was just recently in Europe, and I just couldn't believe, Jay, how expensive it is. I mean, mm-hmm. it really is. And the other positive part, though, is dominated by Chinese tourists. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the three-star and four-star hotels were sold out, so the five-star were outrageous prices. Like the, the uh, gold show they always have for the um, uh, Denver Gold Show, they always have one in Zurich. Well, the, the, the Hyatt was wanting $2,400 a, a night for a room. Oof. Well, uh, that's, uh, because all the other all the other rooms are taken up by Chinese tourists. I went to <laughs> Milan. That's the same thing. I saw Chinese tourism, so that fits in well with my Jets ETF because uh, a, you know, that was a a call that the, the rise of GDP per capita. Not only do you see more gold being consumed out of China and India, but Chinese that love capitalism 
The first place they go to when they get to New York City is the New York Stock Exchange. They all have selfies. You can see them. It's yeah. amazing. Um, And we had a couple weeks ago, is in New York City for a quick trip, and it was with the New York Stock Exchange to celebrate two years of GoAU, launching up the Smart Beta. And and so that's my sort of refreshing moment of of seeing all the Chinese tourists in front of the New York Stock Exchange. It's very positive. So uh, I want to ask you about Jets and GoAU, but also... Uh, just a question about Hong Kong in, in light of the, the difficulties that are going on there now and your, uh, and your um, Asia fund, your, your China region fund. Uh, what, what are your thoughts about Hong Kong and, and what might that portend? How do you think that will play out? Well, the first big part is it's had a bigger impact on luxury goods uh-huh. um, uh, and discretionary sector of the economy. Um, and Cartier and uh, Richmond, mm-hmm. etc. They're, they're expressing their concerns, um, but I, I think it'll resolve itself. I think that uh, we have just a unique um, leadership, you know, both over there and here. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and I think you know it's the first president I've ever known that uh, gets in front of the mirror every morning and checks how his hair is, and then he checks <laughs> on the stock market. You know. He, there, there's no other president that uses the stock market as a barometer of future growth and economic activity than President Trump. Yeah. And, um, and so I, I think that that's really a unique pattern. Uh, and that whenever you've had an expanding economy, which we still are expanding in the U.S., uh, and you have interest rates drop, there's a 100% probability stock is, stocks will be up in six months. Right. Yeah, that's, so, that's statistically, so, yeah. Yeah, it's a good batting average. I like that. That's a that's like a three point uh, shot, but you're only a foot from the rim. Uh, you know, it's a, it's so it's a good data point. But I think that um, uh, I you know I'm more bullish and constructive. August is always a treacherous month. Uh, yeah. That just goes back in history. Yeah, statistically, so yeah. The guy mm-hmm. to get over with. There's always something goes on. I remember when I you know in 2002 three was bad hurricanes. Uh, it was always so disruptive for the energy market. And uh, so there's always something that happens in this, this time of the year. But, I, I, you know, I remain really bullish about gold, and I'm just trying to, you know, to explain to people that uh, you're not seeing the fund flows in Europe going into uh, the bullion ETFs. You are seeing it here, and you're not seeing it in Southeast Asia. So that I find really interesting. So it's really bullish for me that gold's going to trade higher. Um, and I think that uh, uh, the juniors, the micro-cap stocks, they still haven't found a big bid. And uh, mm-hmm. so there's so many great values out there at this stage that uh, there's probably more regulatory rules have made it more difficult for people to speculate in that space. And that's really what expiration companies are speculation. Oh, yes. uh, someone's going to find something. And that's mm-hmm. speculative money. But from a regulatory point of view, you're allowed to buy lottery tickets and they never yeah. come back after that ticket expires. And you can go to the racetrack, and after that pony's run around the track, you're never going to get your money back. Uh, at least penny, you know, penny stocks, they can always come back if they've gone down. Uh, they get restructured or they, something happens in the cycle. But I, yeah, um, sure. uh, or, you go to, or you can go to casinos. And, yeah, uh, yeah. So, so, so the, the speculative money, and then the other thing is I've noticed the speculative money went into the crypto space. About oh, five yes. billion dollars in 2017 went there. So, to me, trying to eliminate speculative money is like prohibition. It was a disaster, yeah. and people always speculate. 
and uh, hopefully they wake up to that there's a shortage of public companies. You've got to speculate for the juniors, like the cable companies today. Uh, we're mm-hmm. one time penny stocks out of Denver. Uh, that's how they yeah. started, Jones Cable, yeah. Uh, yeah, and some right. financings. Yeah. So no, I, uh, I, you know, th- these are the sort of things I've observed in my global travels. Uh, Europe's extremely overvalued. I don't think they're trying to manipulate the currency. I think it's just outrageous uh, that they wiped out a trillion dollars. They forgave a trillion dollars of bad loans, just like forgiving student loans, like here. Yeah. Okay, trillion dollars, mm-hmm. forget about them. And, and they print that funny bunny, and the Bank of International Settlements is complicit with all that. Uh, they, they'd rather take you know, uh, uh, money from Venezuela's central bank, a corrupt economy, or Argentina, than they would turn around to do a cryptocurrency or gold. You know, so mm-hmm. um, that's something I, I really discovered when I was over there that uh, made it even more so. Uh, and for your gold listeners, what's interesting, for the past 20 years, Morgan Stanley's just come with a nice piece of research, that the best-performing asset class have been REITs. But number uh, two is bullion. Interesting. And, Over the last, what, and, how many years? 20 years. Last 20 years. So, and, and the biggest hedge fund in the world, Ray Dalio's Bridgewater, well, mm-hmm. he's 6 to 10% long bullion. And he, and he does a parity trade against his other asset classes and trades them, goes on and over the market on a regular basis. Uh, and, and so when you think of that, here, here's the number one largest, most successful uh, big, big hedge fund um, that's always got a 10% exposure to gold, and it's gold's the second best asset class. So very, I think that, uh, you know, and I met uh, Ray Dalio in early 90s, no, sorry, 80s, early 80s, at the Contrarian Opinion Forum with Ian McAvity, our old good friend. Oh, sure. Who's no longer, unfortunate. And and I was a young kid as an analyst, and he took me on a trip down to Montreal, and we drove down through the beautiful mountains there uh, in Vermont. Um, And so I I remember, um, you know, what a a brilliant guy he was at this day at that time and what he is today. Yeah, for sure. This thesis on gold, this thesis on gold is real, and let's talk about it. You know, yeah. CPI is in the U.S. is about 1.8. Yeah. And the, and the U.S. government is trying to induce you or seduce you to buy 10-year government bonds at 1.55. So yeah. that means you're going to lose 25 basis points over 10 years in your money. Yeah, before and, you pay and taxes. Say, okay, well, let's, let's go two years. Well, that's mm-hmm. 1.5. So I'm uh-huh. still going to lose money over two years. And most currencies move off that two-year note. And today, President Trump is pushing for 100 basis points drop in rates. Yeah. Well, oh. th- that would yeah. mean that you would be you know, getting, um, that would propel gold to 2,000. That was, uh, the last time we had a 300 basis points negative rate of return was in 2011, and gold hit uh, uh, 1,900. So mm-hmm. I think this is a different scenario, but uh, this this race to zero uh, interest rates uh, mm-hmm. is very, very much steeped in the psychology by so many governments to accept. Um, yeah. The other thing is, is the daily volatility. Uh, it's just to really appreciate that the daily volatility of bullion is plus or minus 1%, 70% of the time, and so is the S&P 500. So, in fact, bullion is not more volatile than the stock market, as a lot of these talking heads on CNBC always say. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but what's interesting is that gold stocks are more volatile, and they're more like biotechnology. It's not right. a event for them on a daily basis to go plus or minus three percent. Oh, uh, for sure. And so, 
So it's important for investors to recognize that the volatility of the gold stocks is, does correlate 94% of the time in the direction of bullion, uh, and gold stocks just have more volatility to them. And so when we get these corrections of 100 basis points sell-off in bullion, it's usually a great time to buy gold stocks when you have a, a trend like what we're witnessing, that is rates going to continue to fall, the world is, is worried about a slowing economy, and uh, there's all these structural imbalances that more than 25% of the global debt of governments is offering negative real rates of return. Well, that's just a real positive scenario for the fear trade for gold. Yeah, it's hard to see anything more positive than that. I have to ask you, Frank, you know, gold, the safe haven. So when we have risk off days, we see the treasuries getting stronger, yields going down, and gold usually too has been behaving very well. Um, what what do you think, when do you think that might change? When do you think that treasuries might might no longer be seen? That, I mean, when you get to zero interest, who wants to buy those things? Well, I mean, why would you want to buy them now, as you just pointed out? But do you see a point in time, and I can remember in the late 70s, I can remember when, you know, when, when treasuries weren't the place to be. Interest rates were rising like crazy. Uh, inflation was really picking up. Our first guest today, Michael Oliver, he believes that we're headed for something akin to the late uh, 1970s. Uh, do you see anything like that as a possibility? Well, you had you know rates rising in the seventies, but they were always massively negative. They're minus seven yes, percent. That's right. They were never rising fast enough well, to, ca- to catch up with inflation. Well, so until we Paul Volcker in nineteen eighty, Frank, and that, that's when it, right. that's what put an end to it. But up until then, G. William Miller and those, uh, I think before him, Paul, uh, before Volcker, uh, who was Arthur Burns, those guys were just pouring fuel onto the fire constantly, weren't they? Just like they're doing now. They just were. like they, all the central banks are doing now. Absolutely. The best-selling book is, uh, you know, just print the money. And mm-hmm. monetary policies, you can, you can keep up with regulations. And, uh, but it's just not so. And it, it catches up with us. And I believe that uh, we're in that scenario now. So what's the best way to play it? Well, it's gold stocks. And the reason yeah. for that is that whenever you have an expanding economy, as I mentioned earlier, and you have rates dropping, Mathematically, the odds are stocks are going to be up. Now, mm-hmm. in all my research, my, my halcyon days of 2002 to 2007, when my fund, Gold Funds, ripped up you know, the competition, we were number one by a wide margin for one, three, and five years, mm-hmm. uh, we had a strong stock market and gold was rising. So whenever you have a strong stock market and gold is rising, the gold stocks are just spectacular performers. Mm-hmm. Well, we've certainly seen it. And uh, uh, Frank, uh, with just two minutes left here, talk to us a little bit about GoAU. What is your? What makes it unique, and how have you performed relative to your peers? Well, when we did the back testing, I spent eight thousand hours on it trying to identify. There's new buyers in town. The new buyers are quant funds, and quant funds are looking at different factors than the old narrative from Bay Street on NAVs and book values, etc. It's a new world. So uh-huh. I was able to, after eight thousand hours of research, identify those factors, and so I created AU, and, and uh, it's basically twenty-eight stocks. The problem with the GDX and GDXJ is that when money goes into them, money equally goes into shitty stocks, excuse my French, uh, and rotten stocks or bad stocks as good stocks. So uh-huh. you get diluted, and all I said, I'm going to screen them. So there's 88 uh-huh. global gold producers. I'm going to automatically take 44 of them, and I'm going to look at those of the lowest debt to 
equity ratio. And then I'm going to look for those companies that are showing revenue last quarters above four quarters and cash flow last quarters above four quarters and have free cash flow yields. Uh, and then go right down to mine down to 200 million dollar market caps and our study showed that this would outperform the GDX day 90% of the, more than 90% of the time on rolling 12 month periods going back a decade so mm. after all that research I launched it two years ago and Jay I'm happy to tell your listeners and then we talked about it in your show when we just launched it it's yes, outperformed the GDXJ by 16% in two yes. years and I believe year to date the last time I looked at it it was beating it by 10% Wonderful. So uh, I think it's an intelligent way um, that if you own the GDX and GXJ, uh, you have the same fee structure, but you have intelligent stock picking um, by uh, U.S. Global for New York Stock Exchange. Go gold, go AU. And so you, uh, just with 30 seconds left, Frank, so you can change those uh, the composition of those 28 stocks from time to time. Is that right? Well, what are you? That's a very good question. Uh, 30% are royalty companies, Jay, because you know the superior, yeah, just a right. superior business model. So and they rebalance each quarter, but the other names change every quarter. So it's actively changing every quarter. And the biggest opportunity took place this time last year when Vanguard blew out of the gold stocks right at the bottom. And uh, we had great stocks being sold out, and we bought them. And uh, that was the biggest turnover. Otherwise, turnover has been pretty slow. Uh, and these stocks have done what they've done. You know, they've uh, outperformed uh, all the active gold fund managers and other ETFs. Okay, we'll have to leave it go with that. Frank, thank you so much for being with us today. Folks, it's usfunds.com, usfunds.com. Go there, learn more about, about all that Frank and his team are doing there. Uh, a very good story. Well, that's it uh, for today, folks. Next week, my uh, main guest is going to be Alistair McLeod, and I think we're going to have uh, probably Michael Oliver with us and a surprise guest as well. So until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 